0: Daniel chapter 3 this evening and not reading the whole chapter but we'll read down to the verse number 18. This is the ESV translation. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Judah in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the councillors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that king nebuchadnezzar had set up <clears throat> then the satraps the prefects the governors the councillors, the treasurers the justices the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that king nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before the image that nebuchadnezzar had set up <clears throat> and the herald proclaimed aloud as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn pipe lyre trigon harp, bagpipe and every kind of music all the peoples nations and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that king nebuchadnezzar had set up therefore at that time certain chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the jews they declared to king nebuchadnezzar o king live forever you o king I've made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not being known to you, O king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up then nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against shadrach meshach and abednego he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated now that will be a reading that's what you call a cliffhanger um, although i think most of us know what happens but nonetheless we'll leave the the narrative there <coughs> In the New Testament, there are warnings against idolatry right throughout the New Testament and indeed the Old. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 14, Paul writes to the Christians there at Corinth and says, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. John has similar warnings in his writings. In 1 John 5 and 21, for example, he says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols this is a section of Daniel that deals with idolatry it's such an obvious example of idolatry well what is idolatry I mean this is the sort of thing that you might imagine if you were to speak about idols perhaps your mind will go to perhaps um, a religion that has um, physical idols that people lie down before or offer things to and Perhaps that in your mind or my mind is what idolatry is. But behind that is idolatry. That's a manifestation of it. But in essence, what is it? Well, I think it would be this the worship of anything other than the true God, the living God. So, for example, in Romans chapter 1, this is the charge that's brought against all humanity in verse 21 through to verse 25. And the culmination of that charge is that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. So people who worship and serve things that have been created rather than the God who created them are engaged in idolatry. More than that, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul says this mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth this is the authorised version of that verse and it's got a cracking word in it and I'll try and pronounce it correctly fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection evil concupiscence and covetousness which is idolatry now that just basically means wickedness and there he's speaking about sin moral sin, sexual sin sin associated with the body And the service and satisfaction of lusts that come from the body and are satisfied in the body. And as we submit ourselves to those, we are worshipping those and committing idolatry. It is idolatry. And covetousness there, the last one, is specifically mentioned as such. Now in the Old Testament, we've got another Um, helpful little section which explains that idolatry is more than skin deep in fact again the real problem of idolatry is the heart and if you go perhaps you might might want to follow this or i'll just read it to you from ezekiel chapter 14 it says this in verse 1 then certain of the elders of israel came to me and sat before me and the word of the lord came to me son of man these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces shall i indeed let myself be consulted by them therefore speak to them and say to them thus says the lord god any one of the house of israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet i the lord will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols i may lay hold of the hearts of the house of israel who are all estranged from me through their idols therefore say to the house of Israel thus says the Lord God repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations and there the accusation is just this that their idolatry was not simply a religious practice it was originating in their heart and their idols were lodged and resident in their heart it was a heart problem it wasn't a problem of practice so much as a problem of heart well idolatry is alive and well in the 21st century and it's alive and well in all sorts of manifestations if you take to one side the idolatry I've spoken about the bowing down to physical idols and also the extreme examples of immorality of sexual immorality as christians we have probably no problem in identifying those things as idolatry and understanding them that they need to be avoided that they need to be shunned but when you come to the idols of our hearts then it's less obvious and i think in the 21st century idols are more subtle for us in our western world it's the things that we put before god sometimes as christians as some authors um, put it that as christians we can even worship things which are in essence good but we make them not good things but god things we actually do and serve and worship things that are good but instead of worshiping god we're worshiping those things We can worship our church, we can worship our relationships, we can worship our friendships, we can worship our service. All these things can be of more significance and greater priority than God in our lives. Sometimes that's a problem for Christians. So idols are never far away from us as a problem. Well, look at this section then, because it's a very vivid example of people who were faced with idolatry and were prepared to stand out from the crowd so in verse one to three it's a strange thing nebuchadnezzar and remember this back in chapter two and verse 47 you remember the last time at the bible class we were speaking about nebuchadnezzar's response to daniel's interpretation and revelation of his dream and you might have thought well you know he's now a worshipper of the true God, he's fallen upon his face in verse 46, he's paid homage to Daniel, and in verse 47 he says, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mystery and so forth, and you think, well, he's acknowledging the greatness of God, but actually when you come to this, you find out that Nebuchadnezzar was not a true believer in God, because he's building an idol to himself he's very fickle he's changeable just like pharaoh with the plagues seems he does one thing and then he changes and does another thing and he builds a massive idol to himself i think it is 90 feet high and nine feet wide nine feet wide that's quite wide but 90 feet high that's a big structure it's a big idol of yourself to build. And so that's what he does. Now he wasn't a stupid man by any stretch of the imagination. And he wasn't a foolish man either. This was not a whim. He is one of the world's greatest architects, in fact, that the world has ever known. One of the world's greatest statesmen one of the world's greatest soldiers, Nebuchadnezzar. He's an intelligent man. He is king of kings over an empire. So what is he doing? This is a political and religious statement, but it's political more than religious. And in his politics, he's using religion, as many politicians have done in the past. He wants to unite his empire which came from different languages which came from different cultures which worship different gods and he wants to unify his empire in himself as most dictators do and create a kind of religion based upon himself when you go back in history and you read about dictators emperors you find this that there was a cult usually in the great empires of history of the main man, you think about um, Stalin in the Soviet Union. <clears throat> you think about Mao in China, Communist China. You think about Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany. And the main man was everywhere. The main man was idolised, worshipped. This is the same thing. And the problem that he's trying to fix is the disunity that can come into such an empire. And by the way, which was the downfall of the Roman Empire, once the Caesars lost the belief within the empire that they were divine, the thing began to crumble. And so in accordance with Daniel 2 in verse 43, in that... um, vision, you remember this, that the iron was mixed with clay and they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men they shall not cleave to one another even as iron is not mixed with clay and so there was disunity, the thing didn't, didn't um, bind together uh, and Nebuchadnezzar wants to bind his empire together and he will do it by setting up this golden image and so yes, he's no doubt in a man of great ego Yes, he does want to be worshipped. Yes, he does want the allegiance of all his leaders, all his civil service. And religiously, he wants to bind the people together. It's a bit like Herod in Acts chapter 12. Herod gives, gives a great speech at Caesarea, and they say it's the voice of a god and not a man. And he's happy about that, and this leads to his death. And so the issue here, as Nebuchadnezzar puts this political plan into practice, is that it involves everyone worshipping him. He's the centre. He's to be exalted. People have to bow down. People have to submit to his authority. Not only to submit to his authority, but to submit to him as the ultimate authority. As God. (coughs) And everybody who was anybody in verse two throughout the empire were called to worship this idol all levels of the administration of the empire and isn't it interesting they all showed up they all showed up remember i was saying last week that this man has the power of life and death in a way that was unusual he had to answer to no one he was the ultimate dictator emperor And they are all called and they all come. Those who were intelligent turned up. The great scientists of the empire, they turned up. The great soldiers, the poets, the philosophers, they're all there. And you know what they're all prepared to do? They're all prepared to bow down and worship that which was created by Nebuchadnezzar and in so doing worship Nebuchadnezzar. Intelligent people. People of science, of philosophy, of the arts. People of warfare. They're all prepared to do it. Apart from three men. Apart from three men. This is a big moment in the lives of these three young men. This is a big deal you imagine this scene on this plain of Jura with that idol in front of them and the great and good of the empire of the then known world are all gathered. Those of wealth, those of distinction, those who are admired, those of power and authority, of science and warfare and all the rest of it, the philosophers, they're all there, they're all gathered, they're all lined up, hundreds, thousands of them. And three men are standing in that crowd. And it's a big moment in their lives. They knew the law of God. And they knew the law regarding this act that they were commanded to do of idolatry. You think of the pressure on these three young men. You know, sometimes we think about peer pressure. Think about the peer pressure. No one is going to see them. There's only three of them. There's not an audience to applaud them. There's three of them in the midst of all of that. Surely you would understand if they bowed the knee. Surely you would give them a pass because of the pressure. What are they meant to do? Offer their lives and sacrifice their lives and no one will even know anything about it? Of what significance would that be? Of what importance would that be? What value would that be? You know, that has been an issue for martyrs throughout history for the cause of Christ. People who've been martyred in places that no one's known about. People who've been martyred in prison cells and concentration camps and gulags out in Soviet Russia. People who still are being martyred for the cause of Christ. And they're only known by who? Well, usually by very few three men under pressure and Nebuchadnezzar makes this edict and it's like synchronized worship Uh, at the precise moment he wants absolute submission and absolute precision you see you think about the Nuremberg not the Nuremberg was it Nuremberg I think it was um, in 1933 through 34 through 35 36 The Nuremberg rallies when Hitler would have all of his followers lined up and drilled and um, all the black shirts of the SS and all the army were there and all the rest of it and the lighting and the flags. You see images of all of these things, all choreographed. Impressive stuff. And Nebuchadnezzar expects everyone, when the music plays, (laughs) to bow down. And failure to do so is a treasonous act. Huge external pressure to conform. Who would want to stand out in that crowd? This isn't being called a name. This isn't losing your job. This is losing your head. Who wants to to stand out in that crowd? Usually what happens is this. In a situation like that even people of great intelligence even people of great moral integrity as far as this world is concerned most people bow to the system we see it in our day the dissenting voices to the moral direction of our society are few and far between very few but the system People are afraid to lose their job. People are afraid to lose their career. People are afraid to be, you know, shamed online and, and all the abuse that comes. People are afraid of all of that pressure. And Christians are same. in business, in employment, afraid to bow before the modern-day God of tolerance, and acceptance the idol upon which before which many people are bowing even if they don't believe it to be so there was probably about 75 according to some writers in any event um, young people like Daniel of Daniel standing and his circumstances taken into captivity 75 according to some writers certainly were more than four yet only four of them are presented as being uncompromising in the face of this sort of pressure only four that's not to say there weren't others but there's only four presented as such And these were elevated to positions of authority within the Chaldean Empire and perhaps were more vulnerable as such and subject to the jealousy and envy of the other Chaldeans, which evidently was the case here. And these Chaldeans, what they do is this, in verse number 8, after it's all said and done and everyone's bowed down, certain Chaldeans come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. That word accuse is literally to eat the pieces of. It's you, it's an expression. It's not a legal expression. It's not a formal accusation. It's, it's like an a, a, a kind of animalistic desire to rip someone to shreds. And they come, demonstrating the appalling sin of envy, obviously. And they make their accusation. Now, their accusation is interesting because it's not accurate. The accusation is just this. They say to King Nebuchadnezzar, first of all, O king, live forever. There are certain Jews in verse number 12 whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province and so on. They pay no attention to you. It's the first thing they say. They pay no attention to you. Now, that wasn't true. They had unquestionably fulfilled their responsibilities to the king and had been promoted as a consequence of so doing. They were good citizens of that Chaldean Empire. People of responsibility, diligent, no doubt. So that wasn't true. But the second part of the accusation is this. They do not serve your gods. Now that was true they thirdly do not worship the golden image that you have set up that was true as well so one part wasn't true two parts were true how could anyone stand in that atmosphere not bow down the implied pressure must have been immense nebuchadnezzar was not just their dictator and emperor he was also their benefactor he had done so much for them and resisting him would have been absolutely futile their future advancement and their careers in Babylon would be gone at the very least. The idol was nothing anyway. Who cares? Just kneel down. Don't pray to the idol. Pray to, Just pretend. Pray to the living God and just pretend that you're praying to that idol. I mean, after all, if they're dead, who's going to serve God in their position? Who's going to stand up for God and their... Who's going to protect the, the people who've been taken into captivity? Implied pressure was great. Direct pressure was great. Because Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, turns to these three Hebrews who won't bow down. Now, it's interesting what he then says to them as he speaks to them in verse number 13. He's raging and he says, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Notice he doesn't mention the first accusation. He knows that it's false. It's not even mentioned. But he does mention the others that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have served. See how accurate that is. He just dispenses with the first one. He knows that they've got regard for him. He knows because he's promoted them and he skips right to the two that were actually correct. And he brings that to bear. What was the problem here? You see, the problem wasn't so much that they worshipped the living god do you know in the roman empire christians were commanded to worship the emperor and burn incense in his honor and the problem in the roman empire wasn't that christians were worshipping the lord jesus christ that wasn't the essential problem the problem was not that because the roman empire was full of different deities that were worshipped all sorts of gods everywhere that wasn't the problem as far as the romans were concerned jesus could be worshipped that's fine the problem came when Christians took a stand and says we cannot worship the Emperor as God. We will only worship Jesus exclusively. Therein lies the problem, and it's the same here. Nebuchadnezzar's fine with other deities, but as long as he is worshipped as the Supreme One, and that is the essential problem of the world toward the Lord Jesus today if the lord jesus is presented exclusively as the only living savior the one in heaven who died on the cross rose again from the dead the only answer to sin and so forth it's the exclusivity of the gospel that brings the problem and so here's this conversation that these three men are famous for they're told the consequences and they're given another opportunity if you don't bow down, you can in that fiery furnace. So here's your opportunity. Bow down. Their response is one of the classic little sections of the Bible. Outstanding. In verse number sixteen, the three of them say to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. incredible we have no need to answer you in this matter that isn't arrogance what they're saying is just this we've got nothing to say we're not going to try and excuse this we're not going to try and wriggle out of this we're not going to try and avoid the consequences of this we have nothing to say they were accepting the accusations as being true they would not worship other gods and they certainly wouldn't bow down before that idol so there's nothing to talk about just won't do it and then it's interesting isn't it one of the um, writers i read said this we have nothing to say to you by way of a denial We have nothing to say to you by way of an explanation because explanations won't mean a thing. And so we just are not concerned about giving you an answer at all. We're standing here and that's where we're going to remain. No rationalisation, no dialogue, no compromise. They just stand. Apart from this. They say this, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us. They had been taught the word of God, they understood this, that their God was able, their God was greater, their God was the living God, their faith was in God, and they were absolutely confident in his ability to deliver them. But their faith was not dependent on God delivering them. For they then say that they would compromise not one bit, no matter. They go on to say this, but if not, be it known to you, o king. Look, if, the, if God, who is able to deliver us, will not deliver us, it doesn't make any difference. We're still not bowing down. How infuriating that must have been to the king. They're standing there and there's a fiery furnace. It's about to get very fiery. And there's imminent death right there. And they say this, we're not going to bow down. We know you're going to put us in there. We're still not going to bow down and we're not going to talk about it. It's just not up for debate. You put us in there and our God can bring us out. But if he doesn't bring us out we're still prepared to go in there and they say this we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set it's one thing to stand out in a crowd when you know it's going to end well it's one thing to have faith in God when you know the outcome is going to be positive. It's another thing to have faith in God knowing that the outcome may not be. To trust God when the answer is no as well as yes. To trust God when the outcome is according to the world, an absolute disaster. To put it into kind of normal everyday life in some parts of the world, to trust God and not compromise when you lose your house, you lose your job, you lose your health, you lose your family, to stand there and say, I will not. I will not. To believe that God is good when he doesn't heal as well as when he does. To believe is the same God. To believe that God is loving when he does provide for us and when he doesn't. To believe that God is gracious when he says no rather than yes. To believe that God is God and to be uncompromisingly worshipped and to leave it with him and his sovereign purposes. To trust him. Now that's all easy to say I'm not standing with my fiery furnace next door Soon my pizza's next door but there's no fiery furnace some of them are hot and all the rest of it, there's no fiery furnace in there and it's easy to talk about this kind of thing you know we're sitting here in Hope Hall you know our lives are not at risk we are not being persecuted at all so this stuff's easy to talk about in this connection in this context but think about these young men think about what they were doing Think about the degree of faith that they had in God. Think about how they knew their God and trusted their God. Think about the depth of that relationship that they were saying, listen, throw us in there if you like. Now, how would they didn't know that they wouldn't be burnt alive? Throw us in there if you like, because we will not bow whether we're burnt or whether we're brought out alive. We'll leave that in the hands of God. Martin Luther, I'll finish with this, on his way to face what was for him the inevitable out of his excommunication from the established church that he was a part of at that time, what's known as the Diet of Worms, and he was going to appear before King Charles V and the Roman prelate and all of the princes of the, the kingdom, the spiritual kingdom as they thought of it then, assembled. He said this, quote, my cause shall be commended to the Lord for he lives and reigns who preserved the three children in the furnace of the Babylonian king. If he is unwilling to preserve me, my life is a small thing compared with Christ. This is what he said. Expect anything of me except flight or recantation. I will not flee much less recant so may the Lord Jesus strengthen me these are big words and we know from the history of Luther that he was prepared to love that in his life we may not be called upon we trust we're not actually called upon to go through experiences like that but in the less daunting experiences of life we perhaps can fail more readily you know when you come across a moment where you are given the opportunity to stand out from the crowd or to merge with the crowd like they were. It may not be such terrifying consequences, but nonetheless, it's there in essence the same thing. Am I willing to take the consequences for being different, one of Christ's? Am I willing only to be linked with Christ when there are no consequences, or am I willing to bear them? for christ these three young men are really a tremendous challenge i think to all of us as christians and next time in the bible class we're going to see exactly what the lord did in that fire for us let's just pray and we'll finish